This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Hamilton Public School Board and six partners in the local community have decided to team up and design a hub in downtown Hamilton on, of course, the site of Sir John A. McDonald uh, School. To talk more about all of this, Christine Bingham is with us, trustee wards one and two. Hamilton went with District School Board and on the line with us now. Uh, Christine, thanks for taking the time. We appreciate this. Oh, thank you, Scott. This is wonderful to be able to to uh, discuss the hub this way. So, uh, talk about this. This is a large area. Tell us about the process uh, on deciding what's what's going to happen to the future. Tell everyone what you're doing. Uh, when we started to think about what a hub would possibly look like, my first reaction was, what do we need for our students? What do we need for their families? What do we need in the immediate community? Um, and that's where it all began. And we've had some public meetings. We've asked them some questions and said, what would you like to see downtown? And it's really come up with some fantastic ways. And with these six partners stepping forward, potential partners stepping forward, uh, we're able to match a lot of what the community is saying that they would really love to see in the downtown neighborhood. So what was the response? What were some of the ideas? Um, we had everything from, um, they wanted more in the way of medical downtown, um, some kind of clinics and things. They want, uh, students all wanted, most of them wanted to make sure they had a soccer pitch. Um, we'll see about that. Uh, they wanted green space. There was a lot of green space and every, everybody said that because the two schools that would be coming together are Hess Street School and Strathcona School. Both of them are very tiny schools, very, very tiny footprints, mm-hmm. and um, there is next to no play space for them. So that was a big one. Uh, they wanted to know that there was going to be um, child care spaces. They wanted to know, uh, we were even talking about putting, possibly putting the assessment center um, in the space uh, as well, because we have so many newcomers who are living in the downtown core, um, especially around the Hester, in the Hester Street School area. Uh, they, they were really looking for the basics of um, just not having to get on some kind of public transit or in a vehicle and going quite a distance uh, away from their own neighborhood in order to have services. So that's what we were looking at. And these partners uh, seem to be a real good basis for what it is the community wanted. What was the reasoning for closing the school in the first place? Um, they were trying to, okay, this is going back a number of years, right. and I wasn't involved in these, um, so my thoughts here. No, we're just giving uh, up, we're just looking for a little bit of back, we're just looking for a little bit yeah. of backstory here. So they, they were trying to space out the schools, basically, um, yeah. and we would have a school in the east, school in the west, school in, in the central area, and with Westdale and Sir John A. so close, um, they wanted to move it over toward, well, what is now the new North High School space, which was the old Scott Park right, uh, School, right. high school as well. Um, and that gives it kind of an, an even space across the city. Mm, makes sense. Uh, for them. Yeah. Uh, we still have two school years of the high school being open, so I, I really, really have a lot of respect for the students and the staff at that school. Uh, we've been trying to make sure that they have a voice and what would be going in, not only in the hub, but how they will also be um, doing transitions to the new schools. Some of the students will go to the Westdale uh, High School, and some of them will be going to the new North School. Um, But we made sure that their voices are also heard 
uh, asking them to even possibly create a legacy of being at Sir John A. site as well. Um, yeah, how, we how, do, how do you deal with that, Christine? Because you know what it's like when schools are changing and moving. Uh, man, neighborhoods yeah. are just, they're, they're, they're dug in with these things. It's their sense of community, and it's a great idea that, that this is being transformed yeah. into something that will give back to the community. But what about those yeah. people that still say, oh, that, was my high, that was my school? Yes, yes, we have a lot of that, but we we ask them to think about how to create a legacy yeah. to put at in the hub. Um, possibly, we're going to need a name for the new school, so we'll have a school naming. Uh, throw in a few things that we can uh, suggestions on possibly what the hub might be, what the school might be. Um, we're trying to make sure that the students are involved as well, and we will have a transitional team to be able to. Um, move them from the one high school into the other high school that they will be going into. And with that, we want to make sure that they're comfortable um, knowing they're going from from one, one school to another. So they will have activities um, and whatnot uh, um, being brought forward with the schools that will be coming together because it is Delta that's going to be going to the new high school, plus some of the Delta students right. going to the church. So, so hmm. there's, there's a huge amount. We have transition committees that uh that we're starting very shortly to do all of that um because it does take takes the whole two years in order to really truly uh transition smoothly uh when was the school built do we know the um sir johnny yeah it was back in the 70s boy (laughs) schools have really changed since then haven't they (laughs) They have desperately changed. Like, honestly, I don't mean this to sound the way that it does and offend anyone that's been there and and is alumni or such, but it doesn't look like a high school from the outside. No, we often say that as well. And to retrofit it with everything that you would want would cost so much money. Um, Building a new school, you can actually start utilizing all of the... We've talked about green roofing and we've talked about um, solar... Uh, we've talked about all kinds of things, not just to put them in, but to also help teach uh, and get students involved in doing more mm. uh, in the way of, of trades, in the way of understanding, in the way of, um, you know, just what life is about now. <laughs> Upgrading Internet so you can use it someday. Mm. <laughs> Some of the older schools... It's really difficult to have uh, something as simple. Well, as well just internet. even I'm looking at a picture of it now. Just even the design, you know, like it, back in that day, yeah. it was everything was built inward as opposed to outward, and yeah. uh, you know, there's just so much more potential uh, with the new building. Although, again, I, I can certainly see the emotional attachment. Will any of this be remaining, or will this all be taken down? At this point, we're, we don't have an absolute answer on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, we do have the auditorium that some people were saying, can't we just keep that and add to it instead? Um, But the building itself would be be far too costly to have to renovate uh, with everything there and the abatement and everything that would have to happen, that it would be better, it would be easier to start from scratch with buildings. Uh, Obviously, a prime piece of real estate, why not sell it? Mm Mm-hmm. I bet you that, that that's, that's obviously been, uh, I'm sure people are pounding at the doors for that as well, I'm sure. Yes, it is an extreme prime piece of, of property that's in the downtown core. Uh, why not sell it? Because what it, we, our main thoughts were, yeah. what if we needed it in the future because we have this extreme um, upward 
trend of, of families moving into the downtown area. Yeah, uh, and then we came to, let's bring in, let's see if we can do the elementary school. It would be about a 600-pupil-place school. Uh, and that's a lot. That's a good that's a good size elementary school and a nice piece of property for them grass to actually play on right there and uh, in the downtown core. So we really, really, we know it's a prime piece of property, but we know the value to us as well as the board. Yeah, and, and you know, with it being such a prime piece of, of property, uh, all the more reason to really take your time and do this hub thing right, because whatever you do yes. create, I mean, it, it, it's going to be a central focal point. Yes, that's, that's exactly it. We really want to make sure we get it right. Uh, and every time we look at something, and we do sit down and say, okay, how does each of these benefit our students? How does each benefit their families? How does each benefit... Uh, the community that is directly surrounding it. Uh, we always talk, and this is, you know, this is, you know, typical of, of any city, any town that, that's been around for any length of time. Uh, neighborhoods transform, uh, schools open, mm-hmm. schools, schools close, neighborhoods build, this sort of thing. How do you balance in Hamilton, uh, obviously, the changing demographics, which we saw 10 years ago, in the downtown court, now it seems there's this influx of people moving back in. Are you concerned? How are you concerned that, you know, uh, anything that has, has dipped in the past, say, 10, 20 years, might all of a sudden, uh, there might be a, a demand? And uh, the other is that you also look into the future as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of the data that is collected from the past, you can also actually reflect that toward the future. And... You do the best that you possibly can and hope that uh, if there is a trend, that, that right there we will be able to make it work. Uh, or, I mean, we had the influx of uh, Syrian uh, newcomers as well. Um, right. That was very quickly, we were, we were able to actually place them uh, very quickly into the schools. Uh, and not all of them were in one place. A large portion of them might have been, but not all everybody was in one place we were able to manage we managed to get them throughout the school board Uh, so there's a lot of a lot of things we look at a lot of uh, demographics we look at of where they would be Um, but it is also a a hit and miss time too (laughs) Um, you can only you can only take a wild guess so many times but it's the data that we've gathered that actually can go forward as well and you can see into the future basically what the trends have been what the trends are going to be uh, and all of that. How do you control the direction that this community hub is going? How do you how do you have the final say? How how do you make the final decision? <laughs> what's best for our students? What's best for their families? What's best for the community? But this again, this, this again, <laughs> this again is board property, right? So uh, it is board property, and it's eight and, acres. So what about yeah. some private? You talked about medical or this, that, or the other. I mean, is this going to be divvied up or piecemealed in some way? So. It's not just all services, it's business, retail, what have you? No, um, that's a definite no. Uh, right. Because of ministry, uh, the Ministry of, of Education, we uh, are only allowed to have nonprofit organizations. Right. So we're not going to have any of the variety stores or liquor stores or uh, any, any of that there. Um, but there will, could be medical-type facilities there. Yes, there would, yes. That that could, it could have the medical, it could have mental health, it could have um, uh, the community centers, it could have 
oh, swimming pool. It could, there's so many things that could be there, but they're not-for-profit right. or non-profit organizations that are going to be within there. And we're really closely looking at how it's going to benefit and how everybody is going to actually work together uh, to benefit that complete downtown area. All right, so you're starting with a clean canvas or perhaps a clean canvas here. What do we know will be there? We, we do know that we, as ministry funding, we're all basing this around. The ministry says, yes, they will fund us. Definitely we know that the, the school is going to be there and mm-hmm. ours, our, our board's there. And the how, large the, how large the school compared to what's there? Uh, oh, much smaller than what is there. The school, right. the high school that's there right now, uh, I believe, was built for about 1,700 students. There's right. roughly about 1,100 now, uh, and we're talking only 600 students okay. for our school, right. plus an area that's going to have possibly the assessment center and the um, uh, adult learning, uh, things like that, um, the child care uh, spaces. Uh, so we'll have a good chunk. Plus, we need our green space for the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a larger portion would be for the other um, organizations. So really, is this up to the board to decide what goes there after listening yes, to does. feedback? <laughs> yes, it does. And yeah. so they could literally turn it into whatever they want uh, in order to suit the needs of the community and so on and so forth. Will we see uh, how much of their administration could we see in this area? Is that possible or not? Um, most likely not. Uh, the most administration would be the assessment center, I believe, right. um, some of the uh, adults. But with the what we still call the new right. um, a school right. board building on the mountain, that's where the majority of, of the uh, that's where the majority is going to be. So, what now for this uh, for this process? What happens next? Well, we have about well. Ministry, we're waiting for ministry approval. We just keep saying that over and over again, waiting for ministry approval. But we're still going to go ahead for the next six months and see um, how this can actually transform, uh, who is who really wants to be in the middle of this, um, how we can actually make it all work, uh, possible drawings of what it might be. Um, there's still so many things that we can put together waiting for that ministry funding to come through. So we uh, will could, be sitting down and doing a few more. Could they deny that? Could they have other plans for the site? Um, the ministry? Mm-hmm. The, at this point, it's it's up to us what right. we want on that site, but mm-hmm. we just need that ministry approval. So the ministry itself does not have... Right. Um, anything planned for that site? So you do. do you, I guess the I guess the question I'm I'm raising here is: Do you see that that be an obstruction in any way? Do you do you foresee getting approval? Um, we are completely, um, uh, absolutely thrilled to to say that yes, we we really feel that we would be getting the approval for all of this. We're we're all really excited about this. It's very very positive at this point. Uh, that we would. we just got to wait for that last ministry saying yes. But it's very, very, very positive outlook at this point. What would you say to those who are concerned about this project and uh, want to be heard? Please come and tell us. 
talk talk to us. Tell us what your concerns are. Um, write to myself. Uh, we're all on the board. Write to um, the, anyone at the board, any of the trustees. Talk to the chair. Talk to whoever. Uh, let us know your concerns. Let us know what it is that you would like to see in the downtown core in that in that space as well. That's going to benefit. Um, don't be afraid. We're wide open on on listening to everyone's concepts of what what uh, they feel they would need down at the downtown core. Christine Bingham has been with us, trustee wards one and two, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board. Christine, exciting times. Thanks for the uh, time. Much appreciated. Great. Thank you so much, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on AM 900 CHML. Billy Bush on Stephen Colbert last night uh, after he wrote a piece in the New York Times, the reason being and why we've heard from him now is... um, Donald Trump bringing up the whole Access Hollywood uh, tape thing, which, of course, brought Billy's career to a grinding halt uh, 14 months ago. And uh, he's, he's ticked that he keeps bringing this stuff up, revictimizing everyone, of, of, of which Billy thinks, uh, I'm guessing, he's won too because he's lost his gig for being on the bus and, and enabling. I'm not defending him. And uh, and then in, in the recent uh, week or so, allegation Trump coming out saying that, well, it may not have been me. It may not have been me on that after he's already admitted it and apologized to it. Why he didn't do all that at the beginning is beyond me. But that's just the narcissist that is Donald Trump. And uh, Billy is concerned that everyone's re-victimized every time this happens. You know, uh, he beca- Donald Trump became president and Billy Bush lost his job. Does anybody feel sorry for Billy Bush? And do we put Billy Bush in the same category as the Harvey Weinsteins? Weinstein, sorry, or Donald Trump? Does enabler, is an enabler just as bad and deserve the same punishment as those who committed the crimes? The politician who makes comments about a threesome during a photo hop, of course it's tasteless, of course it's wrong, of course he shouldn't do it. But do you put him in the same category as Harvey and Kevin and the rest of them? Uh, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, uh, of course, uh, principal at Alyssa PR, pop culture and PR guru with us now. Alyssa, thanks for taking the time. Always great to have you here. Oh, I look forward to our weekly chat, Scott. So what do you think about Billy Bush on Stephen Colbert last night? Do we forgive him? Does this get him off? Well, I think that we have to look at something very interesting. We have to look at timing. So Billy Bush has been quiet for some time now since those uh, that infamous uh, secret hot mic uh, that had him with Donald Trump. But two things have happened. One, Matt Lauer was kicked out of NBC. Two, I think Billy recognized what his last name was. And he's still part of that, that Bush family. And I think... That, and I'm only speculating here, and I do hate to speculate because I always say to my clients, don't speculate, but maybe he felt that the coast was clear for him to come out and finally make a statement 
about his, you know, I don't even want to say interview. We really wasn't an interview about being part of that whole hot mic with Donald Trump. It's very, very interesting timing. And so another thing that happened was... So let me, let me interrupt here. Yeah. Would, would that have been him making that decision or his great PR people? Great PR people. <laughs> I'm sorry I great interrupted. Great PR people or Scott, the family. Oh, it could be. Okay? Yeah. So maybe there's sort of a, an opening here. When you look at the spectrum, as you said, of allegations, and if you look at the spectrum from, you know, Bush being a, a party to a conversation to Weinstein and everything that he has done, where does that fall uh, into the spectrum? So maybe what his handlers felt was is that now we have an opening. Donald Trump has said, well, maybe it wasn't me. Well, there was somebody else there, and it was Billy Bush, so it was him. Billy Bush was the heir apparent to Matt Lauer. Lauer's contract was up in 2018 anyways. They didn't know if it was going to be renewed or not. And because of this faux pas, it is believed that Matt Lauer was the major force here in pushing uh, Billy Bush out of that uh, 9 o'clock hour uh, spot, which is where he was. Wait a second. Bush said on Colbert last night that he thought that uh, Matt Lauer supported him. No, I don't know. I think that's kind of interesting. I don't believe that. He kind of said it reluctantly. I think he said it very reluctantly, and I honestly don't believe that. I think that Matt Lauer had a tremendous amount of pull at NBC that who stayed, who, who, and who went, and who he wanted beside him on the couch. I'll leave that as it may. Well, uh, well, yeah. well, uh, well. Is this now an opportunity for Billy Bush to get back into NBC? Is that what he's looking at? And would would NBC touch that with a ten foot pole? Well, it's really interesting. I mean, is it? You know, you have to think. Well, what did I do? I was party to a conversation, and he may be playing that card. I don't know. I think that NBC would be very, very reluctant. I mean, there's a number of things going on at NBC in the morning right now. So the first thing that we know is that those those four hours of morning TV from 7 to 11 bring in $500 million for NBC. That amount of money floats everything, everything that goes on at the network. So right now you have, they put in Hoda Kotb to sort of as a stand-in for where Matt Lauer was. And it'll be very interesting because they're looking at the ratings probably day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, to see exactly what is the effect that Matt Lauer isn't there. And then they have that 9 o'clock uh, time slot with Megan Kelly. But is and Billy, ratings, is, but is Billy yeah. Bush the answer here? I mean, uh, I, I can see how you may say, you know what, comparing Matt Lauer to Billy Bush, no, Billy Bush got the raw end of the deal. He should not have been fired for just being a privy to something. Uh, that being said, that's one question. Uh, but do you, is that worth bringing him back? Do you do you make that? Do you bring him back? Or, you know, I guess if he turns out to be a poster boy for rehabilitation, then he becomes a draw. But is he there? I don't know. You know, he may be. This was a very, very savvy and bold PR move for Billy Bush A to write something in the New York Times and B, in a, a very, very choicefully choose to be on Colbert, not on Fallon, which is too entertainment, not on Kimmel, where he could have been, the interview couldn't have been as as controlled and would have possibly been made fun of, but on Colbert, which is kind of your, 
you know, thinking person's late night talk show. It is your uncomfortable comedy. Well, it is. And either you can take Colbert's sense of humor slash reality, or you can't. And remember, Colbert had a very rocky run when he first started. Yeah. He's now found his footing. Yeah. So when somebody wants to come out and say their piece, I think that they will do it now on Colbert, because this has set the stage for that. But be that as it may, if I finish connecting the dots, you have Megyn Kelly now in the 9 o'clock hour. Her ratings are rock bottom. So there's, there's a big problem over at NBC. And if things continue to tank and, you know, the money doesn't continue to show for those, for that, those that four-hour time slot, I think that they wouldn't be, it wouldn't be past them to do anything. I, uh, yeah, I, I can, well, obviously there has to be a replacement, but I'm not sure if Billy Bush is jumping from the frying pan back into the fire. You know what? Americans have a very funny sense of what is right and what is wrong. And he definitely I mean, was humiliated on uh, the Colbert show. I mean, you can tell. It was not comfortable to watch. And maybe is that all what America needs? Do we just need to see him brought down a couple of pegs, then we're okay with it? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, we have the sexual predator-in-chief, and the fact that Billy Bush is the only one in the past couple weeks to really come out and say... You know, what happened to those 20 women? Why aren't we listening to them? So he's sort of become a, a bit of a spokesperson for that narrative that nobody really wants to talk about for some reason. So you think this has worked to his advantage? At this point, yes. You know, at this point, I would have to say so. He put himself in the catbird seat. He knew it would not be an easy ride. Colbert would no way do a power, uh, a sort of a powder puff interview. He came out in the New York Times, not USA Today. These are all very premeditated decisions. It's all leading to something, Scott. And, um, and I know that you're having a hard time sort of connecting my little dots here, but... No, I, 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 can, I, can, I can understand that... Uh, well, I know you understand, the but you know what? <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure America is that forgiving, and and I agree. Like he he got handed he he got a raw deal, and again, you know, he was he was in the room. He was in the room when the crime was committed, and he he didn't say, "Hey, cops." Uh, so he'll pay for that. But you know, you can see how he's ticked off when uh, the guy he was with goes on to become president, and he's out of a job. Let me ask you about the other case in regard to uh, the liberal and the conservative MP, and of course they're posing for a photo op. There's three of them there. And uh, uh, the one MP makes reference to a threesome. This isn't the threesome that, you know, whatever. Uh, but makes uh, reference to a threesome. Where does that fit in, uh, in in all of this? Where does that fit in in the spectrum of abuse, as you called it? Okay, so here's the thing, Scott. No longer do men get to make the decision of what is appropriate and what is inappropriate. So I would say that nothing is appropriate. Right now, women are making that decision. So when you say to me, what in the spectrum, uh, where does it fall? Well, it falls wherever we want it to fall. And I hate to sound sort of very vigilant on this, but I think it's about time. So we no longer have to wonder what's inappropriate and what isn't in what is appropriate. It's all under the same bucket, and none of it is any good. So if you think that it's inappropriate to say or you think you're crossing the line or even if you just make it in jest, 
you know, think twice because nobody's going to let it get away. Nobody's going to let you get away with it anymore. So I think nothing is appropriate anymore if you realize it's going to cross the line. And you guys don't get to make the decision and, uh, on that. We do. Uh, you heard when... <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. hey, I'm not... Uh... <laughs> I'm picking my battles very carefully today, When we played the clip of the two MPs, the one apologizing and then the response to the apology, uh, uh, the MP, the female MP, you could hear in her voice the emotion, and she's saying, like, this bothered me. This didn't like me. But you heard in the crowd, like, oh, 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 oh. So do we look at something like this, you know, and we you know, same thing as, as people screaming at reporters when they're trying to file their stories and yelling that line. Uh, is that the same thing as making those comments? Has it got to the point where you and I guess this is what you're referring to. You you cannot say anything now that can be construed as being sexual in nature when in a public or work environment. Right. Right. That's it. Yeah. Like, that's it, guys. You know, if you think it's funny to make a sexual comment about somebody or something in a situation that doesn't warrant it, then it, it really just doesn't warrant it. And women for decades have felt uncomfortable yeah. in these type of situations. And nobody's ever spoken up. So finally we're speaking up. And honestly, for those people in the House of Commons who riled that, uh, that MP... You know, shame on them. You know, shame is a big thing in the House of Commons, right? Shame, shame, shame. You know, uh, when and perhaps and perhaps it shows just how accustomed we are to it when that's our reaction. Like, come on, well, he just he just made reference to a threesome. He wasn't saying that he wanted to have a threesome with her. They were just saying threesome. But again, we've got so used to it that we're not even filtering it anymore. You know, there's a paradigm shift here, and you know what uh, what this whole thing will require is systematic change, and we know. That systematic change is, at its best can take years, decades even. But, you know, it's not just starting a conversation, and you've heard me say that often. Well, at least we're talking about that. It's more than that. People are standing up for themselves and saying, this was wrong, I didn't like it, don't do it again. And just because what you think you can say is sort of status quo and what's wrong with it, there is something wrong with it. And you need to think about it now in those terms. Elizabeth Elizabeth May was pointing out about this situation with the MPs and saying uh, that no, uh, obviously this was investigated and, and no uh, charges were laid or, or it didn't go any further. The investigation was closed. Uh, her insinuating that the bar is too high for this sort of thing. Um, where do you go and, and, and where does this leave HR departments who now have to go back and retool their policy that fits today's world? Well, that's an excellent point, and I'm glad you brought that up, because I consulted a labor relations lawyer on this, and I said, you know, where in the spectrum do these things fall? What makes one worse than the other? And it is up to HR to review their harassment policies and make it very, very crystal clear to every employee what is acceptable and what is not. And they have to attend sessions. And in one case, what this lawyer was telling me, we, they had their employees internally attend sessions, write down that they were there, whether they sat there and listened or snoozed or not, but they made that effort to define and crystallize what harassment is. And in one case, somebody was brought up uh, in an investigation uh, as to harassment, and he said, well, I didn't know that that was not allowed. And, well, yes, you do. You attended the session, you signed a sheet, which makes 
me say that you were there and you should have been listening. So HR departments now, and I hope that they're all doing this because right now I think that HR has gotten a big, huge pass on all of this, not only being complicit, but not being articulate in their policies so their employees know where to stand. Where does this leave the holiday company party? You know what? It leaves it so people don't get hammered and start groping one another just because they're hammered. That's where it leaves it. Why go? You can still go and not get hammered and have a You know what? Listen, the person who's a real lightweight drinker. We were joking about this on the air, and and I even did in my commentary that the last line was, you know, how how this will change the company Christmas party. But even that's a stereotype. Even that's a sexist statement. Well, yeah, it kind of is, but it's your show, so I got to be careful. No, 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 no. No, You know what? You can't go to the company Christmas party and fear that Joe is going to get hammered again and start coming on to every woman. Yeah. It should not be status quo given that Joe could get hammered and that Joe can and use being hammered as, the, uh, as his permission to hit on everybody. Sorry, grow up. You said this, uh, obviously a, st- a systemic issue will take a long time to change. Do you think so? Because, boy, it seems, to be, it seems to be making a real hard turn right now. Do you think this has got legs? Do you think this will last? I, I think that, yes, I think it will last. I mean, you and I have said, you know, what's next? Is this going to keep going? Yeah, apparently so. And I think there's even bigger fish to come, to be quite honest. And what we haven't got to is we haven't got to industry sexual harassment. Yeah. We've seen it on very, very high profile. And when I posted these type of things on my Facebook page, people say, well, what about in the computer industry? You know, what about this? What about that? That's the stuff we don't hear. Mm. So to me, this is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, one more question. Do we treat those who uh, sexually abuse males different than those that sexually abuse females? No. It's all the same. It's all the same. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, uh, principal at Alyssa PR. Alyssa, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Interesting times. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Dellen Millard is issuing his closing uh, at address today in the Laura Babcock murder trial to talk more about all of this. Jordan Donich is with us, criminal lawyer, Donich Law, and on the line with us now. Jordan, thanks so much for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. Glad, for, glad to be here. So uh, your, your, uh, your thoughts on his performance as a whole and his closing arguments. So his performance has been probably as good as you can expect a, a self-represented person to be, okay? This isn't somebody with, uh, obviously, a legal education, but they certainly have a lot of courtroom experience uh, going through this. Um, a lot of lawyers, you'd be surprised, don't get uh, that much cross-examination time. Um, so what we can expect in his closing arguments is probably, um, hopefully, if he's able to separate evidence from submissions, right? So this is a mistake a lot of self-represented people make. Uh, in their closing submissions, right, so their argument, they may try to get in more evidence. Right. So that's going to be interesting to see if he can sever the difference. Um, would uh, we understand that he's going first, uh, and then um, uh, Smitch's lawyer will uh, present their closing arguments along with the Crown? Is there an advantage or disadvantage to him going first? Would it have been better to have watched Smitch's lawyer in action first? 
Well, I think you're dealing with a guy that doesn't really care. That's the thing here, right? If this was someone that was, you know, concerned about having legal advice or having perhaps a lawyer to speak to, uh, they would have had one the whole trial. Right. So I don't think um, there's really any tactical advantage uh, at this point. Really, any advantages he could have had arguably have already been extinguished by being self-represented the whole time. So at this stage in the game, the evidence is in. Um, It doesn't seem to me like it would be much of a material difference to him. Uh, Why did he go first then? Why is he first? Why not Smitch's lawyer first? So we don't know the full details. We're not in the courtroom. That could have been something that was discussed between the parties. He may have volunteered. But at the end of the day, it really makes no difference, okay, because these are simply arguments. the evidence is, is there. So the argument is really just going to try and interpret what the evidence was or uh, perhaps lean it in one way or the other. Um, so tactically, it really is no difference. The case is closed. The evidence is in by all parties. The cross-examination is done. Um, so it, it really could just be a matter of preference at this stage. Um would Smitch's lawyer or will Smitch's lawyer make any reference to Dellen Millard in his closing arguments, or is it all about his client? So in these uh, co-accused cases, they're always complicated. And when you're facing life in prison, really the gloves are off, okay? Uh, ethically, I don't think they care much about each other at this point. It's really about, you know, what can I do to get ahead and maybe perhaps get convicted of a manslaughter or a second-degree murder or something lower, okay? And if that means putting an argument that frames the other person as more guilty, okay, to save Mm -hmm. yourself, Mm -hmm. you can expect some of that. Will we expect that sort of uh, comment from Millard? Will he try to implicate Smitch? Well, he's certainly not there to convict himself, okay? He's not there to... um, say he's the one that's done something. Otherwise, he would have pled guilty. Is creating the confusion between the two, though, enough to confuse a jury? Well, and that could very well be the strategy, right? Or a mistrial, and we've talked about that. So the strategy can be one of two things. It could be perhaps to just complicate the process, and it does, okay? Whenever you're self-represented, it never helps. It's harder for everyone, and it's just because someone's not trained, and they, they make mistakes, and the court has to be patient. So one strategy could be, yes, let's complicate, let's delay this process, and hopefully they can't figure out anything, and, then, and there's a mistrial. Or um, perhaps in some unexpected way, it, it raises some doubt for him, and, and perhaps maybe looks the other, make, makes the other party look more culpable and therefore guilty. We've talked a lot about Dellen Millard representing himself. Obviously, Mark Smitch also uh, on trial here. What about the performance of uh, his lawyer, Smitch's lawyer, Thomas Dungy, uh, in, in his performance? How he, uh, what, what was his case? How, how did he represent his client? So you're dealing with difficult facts here in a difficult situation. There's no body, um, which is obviously a tactical benefit to the defense. Okay, Whenever there's no body... Uh, it's harder to convict. The Crown still has a very good success rate of convicting without a body, and for the reasons we've talked about, they don't want to incentivize criminals to find better ways to dispose of a body. Um, But really what this is going to come down to is attacking all this circumstantial evidence, the tracking on the cell phones, uh, the the examination of the bones in the incinerator, all that kind of stuff. And it really what it's, I think we're really going to understand how, how the process went when the jury's in deliberations and, when they're, and of course, when they're done.
I guess Millard using the phrase uh, "convincing dream" uh, in his uh, in his addressing to the jury, uh, saying that uh, the Crown's case against him is like a convincing dream. How do you interpret that? How will the jury interpret that? Because well, he, a dream is one thing; convincing is another. What he's trying to tell the jury that essentially is this is a it's a theory, okay? It's false, and it's to me, I think he's saying, even though it sounds persuasive, all of this, it's still a fallacy somewhere. That's his way of essentially saying, look, there's obviously evidence here. We can't dispute that. There's, there certainly is evidence here. There's not no evidence. If, if there was no evidence, they wouldn't be charged. Okay, so it's, it's his way of saying, look, there's evidence here, but um, even though it may look like you know, at this place in time, um, it's not in fact true, okay? That's not factually what happened in the universe, and I think that's what uh, uh, his protest is, and that's why he's possibly representing himself. Um, <laughs> uh, when this comes to uh, the jury uh, deliberating, uh, will there be difficulty when calling up pieces of his testimony? Is there some sort of legal loophole there where he's not presented something right, they have to go back, uh, re-listen to evidence? Is there, any, is there any chance of a mistrial that way? Right. So the jury's going to be in a situation here where it's already very difficult without a lawyer. Um, sorry, even with a lawyer. Okay, So with counsel on both sides, it's already extremely difficult for the jury to sever circumstantial evidence from perhaps more conclusive evidence, uh, from the cross-examination, uh, the rules of evidence, perhaps the, the, the assistance of the judge. And then, of course, you're dealing with all that normal, complicated legal process with somebody who doesn't know the rules and isn't trained in the rules. Uh, and that's their right. So you're right. That's, it's like throwing another kind of wrench um, into the analysis of these people. But at the end of the day, we have to all take a step back and, and think, and this is, I think, what the concern is for defense lawyers or, or his defense lawyer, uh, um, is, is that these people may be going into this process already um, knowing in their brains that, that they want a conviction. Okay, that they think these people are guilty, and that they may reverse reason back to that based on the evidence. Uh, he, as I mentioned, he used the term convincing dream, uh, and then I, I guess uh, in an effort to illustrate some doubt, goes on to say, quote, do I even exist? Is this all a dream, he asked. Can I, uh, I can see the judge, I can smell the air, I can touch uh, the wood grain of his lectern. You know, at what point does everyone start rolling their eyes? Right. So the, the question is, what is the benefit of those statements? Right? And he goes on to say, uh, am I actually even here? Uh, you know, is, is he trying to say he's not criminally responsible? Is he trying to say that maybe, you know, he's not capable of running his own trial? What the motives are really is, is something only he knows inside his head, right? And all we can do is try to figure it out here on the outside. Um, but again, I think it comes down to this. When you look at this collectively, when you take a step back, um, if, if, we'll assume for a second, these are both guilty people, um, ideally, I think, if they're thinking logically, uh, they would want to perhaps um, use any tool, any strategy, anything whatsoever to, 
to po- possibly derail the justice system and the process we're dealing with here. How do you think the jury views the fact that he is representing himself? Uh, they must think in their mind that this is a Hail Mary pass. Would they not be asking themselves, why is not this guy got a lawyer? Right. So if we're the jury, and we pretend right now we're in this room and we're dealing with one accused who's represented, uh, one who's not, both really serious charges, no reason why you couldn't be represented, right? So let's assume it could be funded by legal aid. Um, and, and you're thinking and deliberating, why isn't this person representing themselves? So there's two ways. It can go one of two ways. They're legitimately innocent and they're so confident in, in the fact that they're innocent uh, that uh, the truth will set them free. And they don't even need a lawyer for that because... Uh, they have nothing to do with this. Now, I don't think that will be the, the angle they take, but that can certainly be one, one angle. The opposite would be, this is a guy that's so guilty um, that um, he's really trying to use any way whatsoever to just complicate and frustrate the, pos- the process and hopefully ha- have it break down in some way to his benefit. So th- those are the two ways of thinking about it. Can or did Smitch's lawyer take advantage of the fact that Millard re- was representing himself? If you're Smitch's lawyer, how do you view that? So if you're the lawyer for an accused, your job is to represent that person exclusively without a conflict of interest, okay? Um, so that's why you don't have one lawyer ever represent co-accused in, in obviously these type of trials. Perhaps in other trials it may be more acceptable, but certainly not here. So at the end of the day, his job as a fiduciary is to protect his client no matter what. And if that means the facts and the truth is pointing to someone else, then yes, you would push the blame, push the pendulum onto that person. That's your job. Your job is to defend your client, and if that's what the facts show and that's what the evidence is, those are the submissions you make. So if there's a loose thread, they're going to yank on it? Uh, that, that would be, I think, the, the role of the advocate. Yes, if that is in fact what the evidence is, if in fact that's what it shows and it's done um, ethically the process, yeah, your job is to protect your client. So at the end of the day, what happens here, they're both charged with murder, but, oh, you know, what if one's a kingpin, one's an accomplice? And that's what we're dealing with, right? So we're dealing with, I think, okay, someone's very guilty here. Okay, so uh, this isn't a, a case of both these guys could be innocent and not implicated, okay? Mm-hmm. This is a case of someone's very guilty here. We know that. Um, but what about the other guy? Okay, and they're all... I, I think both of them trying to be the other guy here. Yeah. Because the other guy may not be convicted of first degree murder. And he may be convicted of second degree or manslaughter or an accessory. Who knows? Mm. Um, but that's what I think they both want to be. Is the other so, guy. what do you think the chances are of that happening? What do you think the chances are of, as a result of that, them receiving different sentences? Or will they both be charged and convicted, or sorry, convicted of the same and receive the same sentence? And that's the problem for the jury, right? That's their problem. Their problem's going to be sorting out all that and all this evidence to crystallize um, what in fact happened beyond a reasonable doubt for both of these individuals separately. Can that Um, lead to another trial? Can that lead to a a stronger appeal? So what it could lead to is if they're unable to do it, right, based on all this evidence and and, and the cross-examination and the complexity of a self-represented individual, it could lead to the mistrial, right? And that's what everybody is trying to avoid here and Mm -hmm. what everybody does not want to put the family through again. What about him making reference and questioning whether she is even dead or not because there is no body? How does and, that resonate? Right, and that's always the classic 
kind of defense uh, to a uh, allegation of murder without a body, right? The 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 primary defense is well, this person isn't dead; they ran away and they're somewhere on the other side of the earth, and and no one's heard from them because they're a person that uh, you know frequently disappears for decades, right? So again, um, the question is though. Is that hypothetical uh, or speculation um, enough to raise a reasonable doubt when you look at all the other factors combined? The bones in the incinerator, the communication with the cell phone, the tracking, all these things combined. Uh, That's going to be the question. Will the jury question, and I believe we've asked this before, will the jury question why one has representation and one does not, especially when it appears like the richer one has not? I don't think they'll question it in terms of law, but the jury, for, for cert- that, that will certainly influence their judgment, I think, and, and the reasoning process. You can't not look at that, right? But the question is, is it going to benefit him or not? And that's something the jury's going to determine. Uh, no, ma- if there's a conviction of any sort, w- are we just assuming there will be an appeal? Is that just normally what happens? So the, it, 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 it can be. Um, what happens, and it's going to depend really on the strength of the case, and of course the resources, right? If somebody wants to deploy mm. money for an appeal, um, which may have little, uh, you know, merits, right? So that's what it comes down to, and and, and we've seen this uh, with, for example, the Forsillo uh, case, uh, the police officer here in Toronto who uh, was convicted of attempt murder, right. uh, the Samiette team shooting, and then of course. He appealed the conviction, and he was out on bail again, right, if you remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, uh, he was on house arrest and re-detained. Yep. Um, but, but that would be the process that would happen next. So in this case, um, uh, Millard, uh, today, uh, how long for the rest? When do you think this goes to the jury? So it, we, we'll see over the next few days uh, as closing arguments and submissions wrap up. Um, that's not so much what we have to be concerned about. I think the court will eventually, you know, in the short term, uh, close arguments. It's really what's going to be interesting is how long it takes the jury to sort through this. Yeah. That's what's going to be, I think, the big question for everybody. Uh, and is there any indicator uh, from the length of time they take that, that could uh, reveal the, the decision, or is that just a crapshoot? So there has been uh, some studies on this. And yes, um, obviously, if they come in and out in four hours, they've known where they're going to go the yeah. entire proceeding. Uh, they've known uh, that these men are either both guilty or not guilty from the start. Um, so yes, based on the time of deliberation, I think it would be indicative, okay, of perhaps how strong the case was for the prosecution or not. Uh, fascinating. It'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. Uh, do you think because the fact he is representing himself, it is drawing more attention to this case? Because most would seem, and I, uh, you know, uh, obviously this is speculation, but most, most, most would assume this is a cut and dry case. Do you see that? Or is there room for error here? It, uh, I would suggest it is cut and dry. And because of that, that's why he's representing himself. Yeah. Uh, because there is very little, uh, you know, defense tools uh, beyond, I think, as, at least at this point as a self-represented person, beyond trying to frustrate the process and derail it somehow. Uh, will it get to the point, or do you think it would have got to the point where 
the, the jury uh, identifies that where they're watching and just going, you know what, this guy's just tap dancing here. Uh, could this come back to bite him in that regard? Right. So let's think of that, right? If you've seen, um, a, 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 and none of us have really you know, been in that court every day, or at least maybe some of us have, if you've seen someone intentionally just trying to delay and complicate and perhaps um, just stretch the process and just frustrate it altogether, how can that not influence your reasoning as a juror, right? If, if you've witnessed someone just surely intentionally complicate a process for the sake of complicating it, what inference does that lead you to? Does that, can you infer from that that perhaps they're more culpable than not? And that's something they're going to have to determine. Hmm. Jordan Donich has been with us, criminal lawyer, Donich Law. Jordan, fascinating stuff. Thanks for the insight. Much appreciated. Thanks very much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.